Hello and welcome. I'm Roger Ream, and this is the Liberty and Leadership Podcast, a conversation with TFAS alumni, supporters, faculty, and friends who are making a real impact in public policy, business, philanthropy, law, and journalism. Today on Liberty and Leadership, I'm excited to be joined by two guests, Ted Tucker and Jason Clemens. Ted is a colleague of mine at TFAS and serves as our Executive Director for High School Programs, which we operate through our division, the Foundation for Teaching Economics. Jason Clemens is the Executive Vice President at the Fraser Institute, a policy and educational organization based in Vancouver, Canada. Today we're going to learn about a fascinating new project developed by the Fraser Institute that includes a partnership role for TFAS. The program is the Realities of Socialism Project. We're going to hear from Ted and Jason about the findings of a recent study undertaken through this project that compares public perceptions of socialism and capitalism in four countries, the U.S., the U.K., Canada, and Australia. Some of the findings may surprise you. Ted, Jason, thanks for joining me today. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure too, Roger. Thank you. Well, Jason, let, let me start off with you. Before we talk more specifically about the realities of Socialism Project, can you give our listeners a little background about the work of the Fraser Institute? I've admired the work of the Institute for many, many years, including your superb Economic Freedom of the World Index and your uh, newer Essential Scholars series, which has included some studies written by faculty and scholars associated with our programs. Uh, give me an overview of, of the Fraser Institute. Sure. Uh, we're a public policy think tank uh, started in 1974 uh, in Vancouver. We now have offices across the country, uh, and we really have two main active divisions. One is uh, public policy research uh, with a focus on empirical measurement, uh, and the second is uh, active education. Uh, so like FTE, we uh, do teacher workshops, we do outreach to high school and university students. Uh, we even have an economics program for journalists, um, all aimed at trying to better educate average citizens so that they themselves demand uh, better policies. Uh, about 90% of our work is Canadian, uh, but as you mentioned, we do have an international division, um, which is focuses on our economic freedom of the world and our economic freedom of North America projects, as well as our new work on gender equality uh, and how it relates to uh, economic freedom. And how long have you been at the Institute? Well, I, I started there in 1996 as an intern with a full set of hair and, and less wrinkles. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what hard work will do for you. Thank you. Uh, uh, Ted, before we go further, maybe you'd give us an overview of uh, the Foundation for Teaching Economics programs, FTE programs as we call them, and, and the work which you've been doing there for many years. Yeah, I've just realized it's been 22 years since I've been with FTE. Uh, so you still have a little hair. I have good. kept my hair so far, so good, yeah. Um, so yeah, so the, the, the mission of the, the foundation is to promote excellence in economic education and to promote an understanding of how economic freedom has led to uh, human flourishing across the world, across the globe. Uh, and we do this in working with two different groups. We run professional development programs, educational programs for high school and middle school teachers. Uh, and then we also run pre-college programs for high school students. Um, our uh, 
Teacher programs range, they're virtual or in-person, and they range from an hour and a half workshop to week-long residential programs. Uh, you know, kind of the hallmark of what FTE does is active learning. You know, the idea that students should learn economics by doing economics. Um, you know, we also, a unique feature of our teacher programs is that for some of them, we bring in high school students. We have a very strong experiential learning component where we model for the teachers, um, you know, the, the best practices in instruction, economic instruction with students. And we know from experience that teachers are more likely to go back to the classroom and use our materials when they see it working with students, you know, live. Um, and then for high school students, uh, we run, you know, pre-college programs um, during the summer, different, you know, all around the country on different college campuses. And really the goal of those programs is that uh, one of our former board members, Milton Friedman, told our president, um, our former president, that uh, future leaders need to understand economics. And so we use these week-long programs to take potential leaders you know, that are in high school and teach them the economic way of thinking, you know, with the idea that as they move throughout life into leadership positions, they're going to be better decision makers. We're going to get into this reality of socialism project now and uh, the recent study, which will invite a question later in the discussion, I think, is given the tremendous work done through FTE and the Fraser Institute uh, to promote economic literacy. Why is there so much illiteracy out there? And uh, this survey points to some of that. So let's let's dig in there. Jason, uh, could you give us an overview of the realities of socialism project, which I know is more than just this this study that we're going to talk about is just like the first step in this this major project you're undertaking. Sure. So the genesis for the project was basically what you just alluded to, which is we're seeing a larger and larger now a substantial share of young people who are not only open to the idea of socialism, but um, actively saying it's a better system than capitalism. And so for those of us old enough to remember when socialism was a real alternative uh, to capitalism on a global scale, uh, it was puzzling about how on earth could we 30 years later be having the same argument? Uh, and so we we talked about a project to look at a couple countries that made a transition, a real transition from totalitarian socialism to market democracies so that we can understand what is the before look like and what is the after look like. Um, and I can tell we haven't released those studies yet, but I can tell you it's it's pretty stark in terms of just the dismal grinding life that these people lived under socialism and now the kind of prosperity that they're enjoying. We then expanded the project because what we realized pretty quickly is, and we'll certainly talk about the polling data, a lot of young people and a lot of elected leaders, when they say socialism, don't mean socialism. What they think they mean is Scandinavian democratic quote unquote socialism. So we're, we're profiling two countries in Scandinavia to try to better explain that what a lot of political leaders are trying to sell is not the Scandinavian model. It's something else. And then finally, we want to look at a country that actually has a lot of economic freedom, but delivers social programs in a very different way than most Western countries, uh, namely Singapore. And so that it was a five country project. And what we've, what we learned really quickly is we needed something 
to be a foundation for the entire discussion. And that's what led us to the survey project or the polling project that we're, we're going to talk about today, which is really a, an update uh, to many other studies and polling uh, that's been done over the last decade or so uh, that, again, consistently shows that young people who I think it's important to recognize never lived through socialism. Um, but a lot of young people are not only open to socialism, but as I say, are picking it as the ideal economic system. Well, let's dive into that that study, uh, and you know, begin with just you know asking you, Jason, why why do you think it's there's such strong support for socialism uh, among young people, uh, particularly more so than among the older generation? You've touched on it just now in your answer about the fact that they don't have the reality of socialism. Uh, as directly as our generation did. Yeah, I, I think there's a. I think it's a great insight. I think there's a there's a couple explanations. One is clearly age. Um, that we've got eight, basically eighteen to thirty four year olds are markedly more, um, more predisposed to socialism and supportive of socialism than older cohorts, which lived in a world that had the Berlin Wall, had the Soviet bloc countries. So part of it is just the real world experience of having lived through that alternative. Uh, I think the second part of the conversation, which is a really important one, is what do we mean by capitalism when we're talking about an alternative? And uh, Steve, Professor Steve Globern and I are quite confident that um, young people are confusing the status quo today with capitalism. You know, as if having a 45% of GDP spent by government, probably another 10 to 15% regulated by government, as if that is a capitalist system as opposed to a mixed system. So I think part of the explanation is a dissatisfaction with the status quo. I think particularly in countries like Canada and the United States, when we have continued corporate bailouts, and, and really, I think in many ways, we're living in a corporate world. Um, so I, I, I think we want to be careful about status quo versus capitalism. Uh, and I think the third thing, which is much more uh, pertinent in the United States, is you've got a lot of prominent leaders who are selling young people a vision that is not workable. And they're selling them, that, uh, they're selling them on something called socialism that not only has never existed, but cannot mathematically exist because the data is pretty clear. No one wants to pay for it. So. I'd say it's a combination, depending on the country we're talking about, uh, of really those three factors. I would just add, Roger, that I think, you know, the the way students or young people consume media now um, really adds to that sort of um, hostility, not a hostility, but, um, you know, just sort of turning against capitalism. I mean, you think about mainstream media in a lot of cases are running stories that are sort of, you know, hostile towards capitalism, free markets, free enterprise. Uh, and I think you see that also in entertainment, you know, movies, you, you, who's the bad guy usually, you know, it's the businessman, uh, even though we all know that they're the individuals that really create the wealth in the United States. Have you surveyed yet or are you going to kind of what it is that students are thinking when they say socialism? Yeah, one, one of the important parts of our poll, unlike most of the other polls we've seen over the last decade, is we actually asked uh, three different definitions of socialism. So one is the traditional one, the government owns the means of production, that is, they own companies and, and industries. Uh, the second is the government delivers uh, much more services and programs. 
And the third is the government provides a guaranteed annual income. It, what is clear, regardless of the age group, uh, is that when people say socialism, they mean the last two. They mean socialism as a much more expansive government sector, providing more programs and services and or guaranteeing an annual income to their citizens. Um, it Even for those young people who are supportive of socialism, it's still a minority who defines socialism in its historic or traditional context, which that in and of itself, I think, is a problem when you've got 40 percent of people, 18 to 24, saying, yes, the government should own companies and own industries so that they direct them. Um, but again, the, the dominant definition is the alternative, which is government providing more services uh, and or a guaranteed annual income. With the term capitalism, of course, it certainly has a bad reputation. Uh, and I've seen some surveys where if people can compare socialism to free enterprise, free enterprise scores much better than when it's compared to capitalism. But one thing I thought of as, as you were speaking earlier was that those areas in, at least in the United States, where young people complain the most and, and people in general complain the most are those areas where government has the biggest role, like health care and health insurance, education, whether it's K through 12 or, or even in higher ed, government plays a major role. And yet in industries, they've kept their hands off of in, in at least for many years, like technology, high tech, Silicon Valley, those places develop so rapidly with very little government attention. It's where we enjoy all these great products that young people particularly love and spend all their time on. Uh, so that must, that those definitions, and, and it's so hard to change definitions once they're entrenched in our population. I've, I've uh, uh, recall Russ, economist Russ Roberts once suggesting as an offhanded remark in a speech to our students that maybe we should reverse the two words because the system we call capitalism is a system that's social. It's where we freely exchange with one another and we cooperate voluntarily. Maybe that should be called socialism, whereas capitalism is this top-down government-controlled system and capital, you know, the Latin origin is is the head kind of controls everything. So, But uh, definitions certainly play a role, and you're finding that in this report you've done. Uh, do you think... Uh, that policymakers will find some benefits in the results of, of this study you're doing? Uh, are there implications that would guide what policymakers might want to do or how they speak to their constituents? Uh, anything in that regard in terms of a takeaway? Well, certainly. I, I think there's some important uh, insights, regardless of which side of the aisle, so to speak, that you're on. I, I think the first one is, there's just clearly an unworkable, unsolvable problem for those advocating socialism because the data is very clear that people do not want to pay higher taxes, which is the Scandinavian model. Um, regardless of country, so all four countries that we surveyed, the data was very clear. They just do not want to pay higher taxes. And so when you do the math, you could take all the income of the top 10%. And you just don't have enough, forget the incentive effects, you just don't have enough income there to finance the kind of expansion of government that socialists are advocating for. And so I think from a policy perspective, that's got to start being part of the, the discussion about this, as, as economist Harold Demsetz would have said, this is a nirvana fallacy, that we're talking about 
an, something that's never existed in reality and mathematically can't. And so what's the practical alternative that someone like Senator Bernie Sanders is really proposing? Um, I also hope that uh, the, the research that we're doing clarifying the Scandinavian model in Sweden and Denmark will really help that conversation in terms of, okay, if you as a young American want the Danish or the Swedish system, are you willing to support a 25% national sales tax? The data is very clear. They don't. They, they want someone else to pay for it. Now, I think one of the really interesting insights for those on the, the sort of market side of the debate is the danger which I think is clearly coming out in, in most Western countries now, the danger when average citizens bear a very low tax burden relative to the services they consume. And so I think for a long, long time, conservatives or, or free market advocates have said any tax cut any time, even if it's uh, heavily concentrated at the low end of the income spectrum, the problem, though, which I think we're in the middle of now, is we've got a substantial amount of people who pay very little tax and get services at very little to no cost. And so you have this dynamic, um, which several economists at George Mason have talked about, where people will demand services if they're free, even if they're crummy, because they're not seeing the price of that um, through any type of tax. So I do think that's an important insight about the longer term risks of continuing to concentrate the tax burden on the top 20 or even top 10% of income earners. Uh, Cause I do think it leads to this dynamic where you're getting a large and larger portion of the population who just has no stake in the game when it comes to the tax burden. Is, is that dynamic uh, true in Canada as well? Absolutely. So in Canada, the top 20% is the only group, and it's the same data in the United States and the UK. I haven't looked at Australia. Um, but the top 20% is the only group that pays a higher burden in the total tax relative to, the, to their income. So in Canada, the top 20% earn about 45% of total income, but they pay about 53% of the total tax burden. And so that means the other 80% are paying less in the tax burden than they're paying, than they're earning in income. And this is the foundation for, you know, what I would call let's rob Peter to give to me um, because I'm not paying the price where when you look at um, uh, and in Canada, there's an interesting, interesting dynamic because our national sales tax is visible. So whenever you make a purchase, you see that tax it's the most hated tax in the country and it's only 5%. And so when I, when I say to relatives who say we should have a Swedish or a Danish system, look at all the free stuff you get. I said, okay, well, so you want our national sales tax to be 25%. And there's this look of horror of no, 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 no. I, it's, it's that rich person hiding in the forest who doesn't pay his fair share. And the data just, the data does not bear that out. So then, Jason, you can uh, begin a lesson after that uh, comment uh, that there is actually no such thing as a free lunch, which is something we've been saying all along. Someone has to pay. And, and if you take all the money from the wealthiest, it will you know, fund government for a few hours or a few days. So, Well, Ted, what uh, or how, rather, does FD plan to incorporate some of this valuable work into its coursework and to the work you're doing at FTE? Well, ideally, we want to sort of we want to take this research and the writing of the Fraser scholars 
and translate it into, you know, classroom usable materials. Um, we're going to look at things like how do we make sure that we're addressing the state stand, all the state 50 state standards in economic education? Uh, how do these concepts, you know, translating them so that they uh, meet the volunt national voluntary standards in economic education and then use them to, you know, the data to, to, to build out some lessons um, that we want to make sure that we know they're going to be engaging for, uh, you know, for students. But we also know that it'll be easy and teachers will use them. Um, I think it adds a real powerful element to our messaging about the importance of economic freedom. Um, and, you know, we hope to get the message across to teachers, you know, for example, about crony capitalism. You know, if you want to know why there's hostility towards capitalism in, say, the United States, it's because of, as Jason mentioned earlier, you know, these various bailouts that happen. And so that creates a level of skepticism by, you know, younger or less wealthy voters. Um, we, we recently, well, last year in Washington, D.C., where I am, uh, a museum was opened. It's small, but it's powerful. The Museum of Communism, uh, created by the Victims of Communism Foundation. And I, in fact, I had the chairman of that museum on as a guest recently, Elizabeth Spalding, who's a TFAS alum. But it uh, was interesting. We took our students who were here for the spring semester to the museum uh, just a week ago, and they toured it. And it drove home the point that the generation today who are in college, that experience with socialism, like you said, Jason, just it's non-existent. I mean, it's probably barely a, a few pages and a, a maybe one class in their history course where they learn about what was the profound events of my life uh, that took place. So I'm fascinated, and we won't go into detail with it today because it's not you aren't at the phase yet, but can you touch on which countries you're looking at in terms of that experience under uh, more totalitarian government and uh, what you're hoping to tease out in the, the study? Sure, of course. So Poland and Estonia are the two countries uh, that we're, we're looking at in terms of countries that were totalitarian socialist countries that transitioned to market democracies. Uh, Poland uh, will be released in May, uh, so it's right around the corner. Uh, Estonia will be after that, and then the, the two Scandinavian countries. Um, I, I mean, I'm certainly happy to share with you some of the some of the results we've seen uh, or that I've been able to see from the Poland study. Um, and it, you know, you you look at the data, and then you, you really have to take a step back. You know, as a, as an example. In the 1980s, uh, Polish people waited 15 to 30 years for housing. Like, to me, that <laughs> that data point should be the end of the discussion. Like, we just that there should not I, we shouldn't then have to talk about that Polish people for basic goods had to work anywhere between four and 17 hours more than West Germans during the 1980s. Th those kinds of data, we hope, really start to explain how grindingly poor the average person was in Poland. But perhaps I think the most powerful insight, it'll be interesting to see once we release it, is that the elites within the Communist Party did not live that kind of life. The, the idea that socialism in its real world form eliminated inequality is just not true. They didn't pay taxes. They they uh, used special grocery stores only for party members. 
They had access to um, resorts that were only for party members. So the reality is they didn't leave, they didn't live the same kind of life as the average poll. Now, it seems to me what's important is that they didn't get that special treatment because they delivered a good or service that average Polish people benefited from. They got that special treatment because they were elites in a corrupt political system. Uh, and so, you know, I, 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 our expectation is that there are some really important and powerful examples of what real socialism actually looked like uh, in those two countries. And then thankfully, as they made the transition to markets and democracy, uh, the life of the average Pole and Estonian uh, increased almost immeasurably. I mean, it's hard to, some of the charts actually look like we made them up because it looks like a hockey stick where it's just grinding poverty or uh, stagnating life expectancy. And then you see them starting to catch up with the other industrialized countries when they make this transition. So I, I, I do think there there's some really important um, insights that, as, as Ted had said, are easy for people to understand. Like that stat about waiting 15 years at a minimum for housing, that, that's not what we enjoy in Australia or Canada or the United States uh, or the UK or most Western countries, because to varying extents, we have functioning markets. Yeah, you bring to mind uh, Orwell's Animal Farm with the I forgot if it was Napoleon or who said, you know, we're all equal, but some are more equal than others. And that's the reality of socialism. Uh, Ted, what do you have any sense uh, that you can share in terms of uh, either teachers or students coming to FTE programs in terms of, you know, their knowledge about socialism, uh, their support in some cases for socialism, perhaps, and, uh, I recall a story a few years ago uh, at a program we did in Nashville, Tennessee, I think, that one of our uh, colleagues, Ken Leonard, shared with me of a teacher toward the end of the week asking a question about, you know, saying, I'm really understanding what you're teaching me and that free markets are superior to socialism. But what I can't understand is why things in Cuba are so much better than the U.S. And, you know, Ken said it was like, you know, now I have to walk him through what things are really like in, in Cuba, uh, because there's this, un, this impression often that, you know, their healthcare is superior to ours and people are more equal. And, you know, these are impressions that, uh, are propaganda coming out of the place that aren't part of the reality. But what, what have you found in, I think, in FT? Or have- I think in, in general with students, I think they're still young. Um, you know, we're dealing with high school kids. I think we still have an opportunity to really educate them. Um, you know, now these are minors being taken care of by their parents. And so they tend to definitely be thinking more in terms of what's fair. Um, and so I, I think it's harder for them to maybe really grasp um, what, even though socialism, we talk about it being fair, it's really not. And, or, or I should say really, you know, in socialism, they're all fair, it's all equal, right? But everyone's equally poor. But trying to get them to, um, you know, really understand what the free market can do, what free enterprise can do. But they're they're more impressionable. And I think there's really an opportunity to reach and those those students. And when they start understanding opportunity costs, comparative advantage, incentives, you know, all those key economic concepts, I think we really make a difference. I think with teachers, um, it's more it's definitely mixed. You get a mixed audience. You have. Some teachers who are very 
um, I think, friendly towards socialism. But again, going to the the case of what Jason said, um, socialism, where government's providing a lot of benefits, but they don't necessarily have to pay for them. Um, and but I think that in some ways is just the nature of a lot of teachers. They don't have maybe as strong of an entrepreneurial um, instinct. Maybe that's why they're teachers. It's a little safer of a job. Um, but I think there's also other teachers that are very much pro market, pro economic freedom. Um, and you, you Ted, uh, FD added this uh, program on government spending and budgets, and I imagine that helps a teacher understand some of the themes Jason touched on in terms of the fact that there's only so much money to spend in a, in a government budget. And while they can create money out of thin air through inflation and, and borrowing uh, at some point, decisions have to be made and limits have to be put on what is available. I think that I've seen teachers do that exercise and, Kind of, it opens, it turns on a light bulb in their, in their heads. Yeah, I think teachers are especially cognizant of that or interested in that topic, right? And a lot of it's because they're getting close to retirement. And when they start sort of seeing what you've just alluded to, or Jason has earlier about the borrowing and the spending and how much might actually be available to them, it definitely sends the message that maybe we do need to, to change things um, and think about cutting government spending, for example. And Jason, I, I, I guess deficit spending and the, the, the willingness of central banks to just go along with the policymakers and create money out of thin air is added to the to this uh, fact you mentioned earlier that we don't pay for the full cost of government. Uh, and if we had a, a requirement that the budget be balanced, then we'd feel more pain uh, from government spending. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting point because I think there's there's two things happening right now in most Western countries. One is average citizens are getting hit in the face pretty hard with the idea that we can just simply print money through the central bank. Um, I mean, the polling data is clear that inflation is the number one issue in most Western countries. So it's a really interesting time because for 30 years, roughly, we've been talking about you know, the central banks need to have an inflation target and we got to their only job is to look at the money supply and ensure a stable uh, rates of inflation. The experiment with COVID and the monetizing of the borrowing has led us to the position we're in now. So I think average people are just not they are not interested in an answer that says the central bank's going to finance more government spending as so, sort of the modern monetary theory advocates would suggest. I think that the second issue or the second aspect of the argument is is a tougher one, um, particularly as we're seeing in most Western countries that a, a, a lower and lower share of households have children. Well, I mean, as Milton Friedman explained a long time ago, he, he was astounded at the degree to which parents went out of their way to make sure their kids had a better life, even though they wouldn't be around for most of that life. Um, but when you have a, my own view is when you have a, a, a smaller and smaller share of households with children, to me, it does mean you're more and more open to kicking the can down the road for the cost of current spending, which is debt. Um, the other issue, which is related to that, and I, and I think countries like Canada are going to pay a higher price than, say, a country like the United States, is our interest costs are increasing for government are increasing quite precipitously 
which obviously then create a real wedge between what people pay in taxes versus what they get back. Uh, and as a small open economy, we're more susceptible to those interest rate movements. And so that wedge where we're spending more and more money just on interest costs for past debt, uh, I think really starts raising questions when it's not six months, but it's a couple of years. And in certainly Canada, uh, we went through a near debt crisis in the mid 1990s that led to um, incredibly important reforms. So I think one of the interesting questions for the UK, Australia and Canada is, are we now at the front end of that where the discipline of having to pay interest on your debt is going to impose fiscal discipline on those governments? Um, I think the U.S. is in a slightly different position because um, whether China likes it or not, the U.S. is still the reserve currency for the world. Um, well, we'll see for how much longer. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, there there's certainly a move away from that. I think uh, some trend in that direction. Uh but that, you're you're making an interesting point there. Uh, the Canada may face this in, Aust- in Australia before the U.S. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, Economic Freedom of the World Index, which is probably something that more than anything else is defined the Fraser Institute publicly in terms of knowing what you guys do and the use of that. That seems to me just a tremendous educational tool that should be used in, in economics courses, in, in history and political science courses. Do you see it used in that way quite often in schools in Canada or elsewhere in the world? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, once people kind of wrap their head around what economic freedom means, um, it, it's interesting to see some politicians who say they believe in freedom when it's the antithesis of what they're talking about. But once people get an idea of what are we actually talking about, it is a incredibly powerful tool because, uh, as you both know, on, on issue after issue um, and some of the innovative work that, that, that Professor uh, Rosie uh, Fike is doing on gender norms and gender equality and uh, rights for women, on issue after issue, it's just clear that as you get more economic freedom, you get more of all these other things that we value. And so... The, the argument for the socialists of we want a much larger government sector where by definition it means bureaucrats and politicians control the resources, you're not getting all these other benefits, whether it's life expectancy, um, openness uh, to different races and different sexual orientations, uh, whether it's women's rights uh, or gender equality. I mean, all of these other things we uh, tend to value come hand in hand with greater economic freedom. So I think it can be uh, an incredibly powerful tool. And thankfully, we've partnered with with FTE and TFAS on many projects uh, along those lines. And, and certainly this project, Realities, fits right into that. And one one area you didn't mention that's so important to young people, too, is cleaner environments. Yeah, absolutely. Are so linked to, to that. And, and, yeah, no, we just we just worked with Fraser on another project on the fundamentals of environmental economics and really kind of the key message coming out of, out of that is if you want environmental protection, you need to you know create wealth. You need to have a capitalist free market system so you can have the wealth to protect your environment because it's a good just like any other good. Well, that's great. I, I think we're running up on uh, our time limit, but uh, I think this has been a great discussion and a good taste of the work that's part of this realities of socialism project that you're doing, Jason. Uh, I hope uh, we can do everything in our power at, at TFAS and FTE to 
to take advantage of that work and get it out so that high school students, teachers, students in our college programs will benefit from it. Uh, I know we've used the Economic Freedom Index in our programs, particularly internationally. Students are always really curious to see where they're, the country they come from scores in that index. Sadly, uh, the U.S. I know has been falling in those indexes. I don't know about Canada, but us uh, too. I, who, who's who's in the top? Uh, is is uh, I know Hong Kong has been number one. Are they still number one? Uh, well, they they were last year. I yeah, okay. There's kind of a running bet in our shop as to uh, when the data is going to show that they're going to fall. And what's interesting for us is that the country that's going to be number one, we assume uh, Singapore is the the fifth country in our series on realities of socialism. So uh, it'll be a, it'll be a very interesting discussion amongst think tanks about the Singaporean model. Yeah. Well, we, we held a program in Hong Kong for about 10 years. Uh, sadly uh, in 2019 was our last year there. It was just, it's such a wonderful place in the past. Uh, great example of, free people just really creating human flourishing and uh, a success story on, on, a, on a rock in the off the coast of China that they could accomplish all that. And uh, I'm glad you both had the opportunity to mention Milton Friedman, who I know play, played an important role in FTE, an important role with the Fraser Institute, and I think with your index. And uh, so uh, I'll... I'll thank you for joining me today. Uh, keep up the great work. It's so important that we fight economic illiteracy and raise uh, new generations, the U.S., Canada, and elsewhere who understand the importance and the ties between economic freedom and human flourishing. So thanks for being my guest today. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure, Roger. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Liberty and Leadership Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, like, or share the show on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like this episode, I ask you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us an email at podcast at tfast.org. The Liberty and Leadership Podcast is produced at K Global Studios in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Roger Ream. And until next time, show courage in things large and small.